Hello and welcome to the Q York podcast. It's great to have you with us today and we hope that as you listen, you'll be inspired as we continue on our shared quest together. This podcast is entirely free and yet it's not cheap to put together and wouldn't be possible without the generosity of our supporters. So if you consider yourself a supporter of Q, then please head to qyork.co.uk and hit donate to show your support today because there really is no Q without you. Thank you and enjoy today's message. So um, for those joining us uh, not in the building, and I know this will be on the website, but you can see the video we just watched on YouTube if you look for Cosmic Eye, but look for the remastered version, gives you the bigger, bigger version of it. Now, watching that video, I think it's a fabulous video, but I have a major problem with it. And my problem is this, that it starts in the wrong place. I woke up the other morning with a phrase going around in my head that wouldn't leave me alone. And that phrase was, I matter. I matter. And it triggered my thinking on what that means and why. And what is it that we are looking for within that self-affirming confession? From an emotional validation perspective, uh, I get it, I matter, I get it, we want to feel that, don't we? But in the context of the available potentiality within the great expanding expanse of all things, does that limitation to I matter compromise my ability to engage with all the latent creative energy that is around me, in me, above me, below me, inside of me, of which I am part. And therefore, could it be that my emotional need for validation by, cons by considering that I matter might actually be an obstacle to much greater things for our being? Does it separate me from, rather than joining me to, what may be the essential ingredient that in saying I matter, I am looking for? See, it, it's, it, it struck me as I was laid in bed thinking this, that it's funny how matter has become synonymous with important and meaning. You know, I matter, we mean I am important. We mean I have meaning. But really, the truth is, matter and importance are two completely separate and different things. Because matter is to do with material. But you see, when I say I matter... I am locating my very existence within the limitations of material matter, material substance, and material things. And so I think because, because we have confused matter with important, it's confused our understanding. And I think what we've gained through it is a materialistic idea of being and meaning. Now, you may not think it, but you see, I matter really is a materialistic thing. One could say it's a spiritual capitalism. Why is it that? Well, let me explain, because that means that trades and transactions are what we're involved with. We trade things to get things. We make transactions in the hope that those contracts will be fulfilled 
And that's all in the expectation of gaining something, of owning something, of having more of something. That's materialism. It's capitalistic materialism. And so even in that very statement of I matter, there has come a confusion because we've not understood really what we mean by matter. So when we say, does it matter, we have distorted the truth of that word. And hopefully our video brings us back a little more to a bigger concept of what it means to matter. So rather than being one with and sharing in, by that mindset, we actually separate ourselves from And so the thing that we're looking for at the deepest level, we can't find because we've become materialistic, I matter. Now there's a, there's a in, in, in the Bible, in our Bible, in the Old Testament, um, a guy called David who's an important character and the story of his life is brilliant. And I'll say some, something about the context of characters and writings a little later, but... Um, there, is a, there is a psalm in the book of Psalms that is put down to David writing it. And this is what he says in Psalm 131. My heart is not proud, O, o Lord. My eyes are not haughty. That means arrogant, if you don't understand old language. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. But I have stilled and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother like a weaned child is my soul within me oh Israel put your hope in the Lord both now and forevermore I'm interested the fact that he doesn't say like a weaning child which would be sucking on its mother's breast but he says like a weaned child I have taken in something from outside of myself and now I've come to a place of stillness and quietness why because I am not concerning myself with things that are beyond myself, but I am prepared to rest into what is beyond myself. The expansiveness we witness in the video is amazing, but it's also scary, especially if you like defined boundaries and controlled outcomes. I think that our problem in life is not so much that we are afraid of the unknown, but rather we're afraid of the known coming to an end. I want you to think about that just for a moment. Our greatest fear is not of the unknown, it's of the known coming to an end. And we struggle to deal with that because we have an introverted understanding of life. And so we've developed our systems, our strategies, our coping mechanisms to counteract this very thing. So coming back to our video, none of this began with us at the center. Sorry. Our various stories and sacred texts, from whatever conviction of faith you come, might seem to tell us that it did, and it puts us right at the center, but maybe that's because we find it difficult to find purpose in the absence of us. And But maybe... Our self-obsession with us robs us of the wow. Because we can't often say wow about us. So we're looking for wow, 
but we're looking for it in the self-obsession. Do you understand what I'm saying? But maybe it's the non-us, the losing ourselves, and and don't go all hyper-evangelical, charismatic, spiritually on me with that, that it's some kind of flagellation and, you know, uh, I just mean actually... It, the the, the non-us, the, the losing myself into something bigger bit that holds the greatest opportunity for growth. I'm sure that Jesus' statement, my kingdom is not of this world, means much more than we give credit for. Most people think what he's saying is, I, I have a kingdom in heaven and we're here. Listen, that is an error to limit what he is saying when he says, my kingdom is not of this world. You could just as easily show that video. So somewhere along the path, we in the West particularly lost our relationship with immensity and unpredictability and mystery, something ancient civilizations were far more accepting of. And so I read something that Neil Oliver, the, the um, historian on TV, said this, this wrote. This is, this is what he wrote. Despite all the life-changing discoveries and inventions that science has bequeathed upon us and the amazing forward steps taken, the Western world is home to many unhappy people, depressed, stressed, lonely, self-loathing, self-doubting, even hopeless and nihilistic. Scientists have explained much of the what, how, where and when of the universe But what science cannot do and has not done so far is tell us how to be alive in the world and why to be alive in the world. Science tells us what life is, is, not what it is for. Our most ancient ancestors were not scientists, but it seems they sought answers, answers to questions, answers to questions about what it meant to be human and alive. I conclude from this that it might matter as much to look for those answers as it is to find them. Following on from where we were, I made the statement that it might matter as much to look for the answers as it it is to find them. It might be just as important. And um, I come from a long tradition of Bible-believing Christians. And um, you might say, well, do you believe the Bible still? Yes, I believe the Bible still, but I believe it in a very different way. I believe it through a very different framework. I believe it through a very different understanding. And some of that thinking has been influenced by simply looking for something beyond what I already had. The getting away from the last video of being one focused, I matter, into something that's wider to spread and expand your thinking that actually we may not be the only ones with the only thing that only matters to the only people who God loves. Long before there was science, there were stories to explain the experiences of life. Different people in different places, separated by vast distances as well as by time, somehow came up with variations of the same stories. 
and told them to their children. Tales about the creation of the world. It's not exclusive to Christianity or Judaism or Islam. And the separation of land and sea and sky. Our story is not separate from. The making of the first people. Go anywhere in the world among any group, people group and you will find stories of the creation, separation of land, sea and sky and the making of people. One of them uh, in Vancouver in Canada, the local um, uh, First Nation tribe there believe we came out of a clamshell. Say, well, that's crazy, isn't it? No, because they had to have stories to try and explain we came from somewhere. There is meaning, but it's bigger than just us. And if we can once again find that deeper meaning, maybe the us will go from the I matter to I am, which we talked about the other week. And they have the stories, and we do, about the coming of floods, about the vengeance of gods, and the adventures of heroes. And the Bible's a good read. The problem is with the Bible, particularly when you read the Old Testament, you can easily get into the multinational cross-cultural idea of the vengeance of gods. The God of the Old Testament, by all counts, when you look at it, is a very vengeful God. And I'm not sure, like Marcion of Sinop said, that he is the God of Jesus, and I'm not even sure he is the God who first revealed himself. I think he became the construct of peoples, just like all peoples do, to make our God fit our situation to give us our victories and dominate our enemies because God doesn't love them and doesn't want them to prosper, but he does us, and therefore we can go after them and crush them and destroy them and steal their land and, and take their people for slaves, and our God is with us. It's interesting in our recent history that God was on our side in the Second World War. It's interesting talking to German Christians that God was on their side, and Russians that God was on their side. And if you go throughout history, it's always been a matter, even if you go back to the ancient Greeks and Sparta, God was on our side. Now, what I'm trying to open you up to, there is a danger that we isolate ourselves so narrow that we think our version of God, our expression of God, our, our words of God, and even what we read about God is the only way to see him. Within those groups or people, some of the stories told are true, some less so. But they're both important because they relate to us, the questions we ask in the context of their world. So the, the story's important, the true bits and the not-so-true bits. I love this statement, stories are wisdom distilled. I read the Bible in that way, stories our wisdom distilled. I'm looking for the wisdom within the story, the essence of all that is important. Therefore, to resist the stories may be to reject wisdom. Now, when I say that, I'm not just talking about Bible stories. To reject the stories may be to reject wisdom. 
In the ancient world, all they had were stories as answers to all of our questions. And these stories are like the cups filled with the different color water that you saw in the video that together make a picture that holds within it the story of life. I wanted to use that video for that reason, how they take those colored cups and line them up with the colored water and you can't see what's happening, but it's only by the inclusion of each cup which represents a story that you then, when you draw back, begin to see the whole picture, the whole image. What wisdom was it that declared to us to be living in the uni-verse. We, we, we've known that phrase from our earliest days of understanding. But what wisdom was it that declared us to be living in the uni-verse? Uni, meaning one, singular. Verse, meaning a construct of sound or story. We live in the universe. We are part of the universe. It's all one verse going out to the farthest reaches that we can reach of, of the cosmos and down to the smallest thing that we can see in quarks, up and down quarks. In all of that, we are living in a universe. It's one thing. So... The reason I'm bringing this to you today, wouldn't it be wonderful if instead of being self-absorbed purely with our matter, that all of that was somehow flowing through us? Now we use terms for that, which I'm very comfortable with. An experience of God. It really is an experience of God. We have to use language and terminologies. It's an experience of God. It's the Christ in you, the hope of glory, that's bigger than just I believe in Jesus to get me to heaven. That's the Christ in you that says, wow, if somehow I can be one with all of this, then the same energy, the same power, the same creativity that flows through that from the smallest to the biggest is actually flowing through me. In my Christian heritage, we call that miracle. If I were constructing the books that we know as the Bible, I would probably start in just the same way. In the beginning. It's a good way to start, isn't it? In the beginning, God. That very first statement has within it so much that you can miss and bypass because then you get into the elements and issues of the matter of the story that actually that statement in itself, in the beginning, God, now to confuse that even more and cause greater problems for those who uh, think I'm a heretic, but now are almost certain that I'm a heretic. The actual Hebrew there is plural. So it says, in the beginning, God's. Now, I don't have a problem with that. You know, how we explained that in our Christian heritage was it's Father, Son, and Spirit. It was talking about the Trinity from the beginning. But think about in a culture where they were still wrestling with the issue of God or gods. Monotheism, pluralism. And even if you look at the distant heritage of the Hebrew people, Right at the beginning, there is a, a strong case to be made historically and archaeologically that they were polytheistic 
not monotheistic. Now, that got tidied up. And let me tell you what we do in church, because I've been around in this for ages, so I know, the, I know the tricks we pull. So we said, no, we're monotheistic. There is one God. We have one God. But then he has what's called the compound names, which are, he is Jehovah Jireh. That means my provider. He's Jehovah Nisi, my banner. He's Jehovah Sidkin, a second, remember all this stuff, my righteousness. Jehovah Rophe, my healer. Now, what is that other than a sneaky way to say we are monotheistic when actually we're polytheistic? Because it's like one God, but he's got all those seven things, or we say one God, but he's Father, Son, and Spirit. Now, I'm not trying to distort or dismay your understanding or to stir you away from an appreciation of God. What I'm trying to do is say, when you try to contain this in-the-beginning being into the finite understanding of your mind or the context of one group's doctrinal approach, you cut off the very thing that you're looking for. Our venturing out into space has filled us with humbling but expansive amazement. But our journey into quantum physics the other way has, has demanded the use of a new word to explain its revelation. That word is potentiality. When it comes to our own existence, we might describe it as controlled chaos. That's our life. Because it's built around matter. But I have a question which I'll deal with in my last section. Does chaos play a role or is it just an innocent bystander? That video we've just watched uh, is a record of what is called cymatic sound patterns. You can pull that up on YouTube or you can, you'll be able to see it on, on um, our website when this talk is released. And um, I wanted to, to show that because coming out of my previous question about the role that chaos plays, or is it just an innocent bystander, the sand on the tray is just randomly scattered. One might say it's just chaotic. It does not make a shape. It does not make a form. It's just chaotic, like sometimes our life is. But then sound is introduced. And I wonder sometimes whether order, at least order as we understand and desire it, is actually a man-made phenomenon designed to protect us from our known coming to an end. We are so keen on order and structure. Anything that becomes structured is no longer flexible because it's a structure. That's why, again, when I talk about the Bible and the stories of the Bible, why do you think so much of the pilgrim journey was people wandering and living in tents? Because there's nothing solid. Everything's flexible and movable. And so our problem is that, 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 that we, we designed this thing called order that actually you might think the whole universe is in order, but actually what you're seeing is the consequence of chaos, and it looks very much like order, but actually it all began in chaos. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth without form, void, empty, darkness on the face. Those ancient writers were simply saying, listen guys, all this emerged from chaos. 
And so if this emerged from chaos, just think what can emerge from your chaos by the same principle. But one could write, in the beginning, chaos. And God. And there comes the difference. And that may be our, it may be our lust for order and norm that keeps us from cooperating with the process that thrives more in chaos than we feel comfortable accepting. We don't want this thing to originate and thrive in chaos. But, but it, it, we're probably not as comfortable with the sound we hear we might wish to believe that we're open and vulnerable, but our need for order and our fear of the known coming to an end means that we are not so open to a new sound. And so I know from being who I am and what I am that when you bring a new sound, there is huge resistance because it's not a familiar sound. And the truth is, don't you be bringing that sound because you're likely now to create chaos where we created order. And then what comes out of the chaos may not be what we can control. So we'd rather you didn't bring the sound. So you are privileged people. Very privileged to have this opportunity to hear a sound that might cause more chaos initially but as that sound moves, you see, sound never ends in chaos. Sound always ends in pattern. It ends in beauty. But sound also never constructs the identical pattern more than once. Each time it changes the pattern, just like snowflakes. There's not a single snowflake that is the same as another snowflake. And it all starts by moisture latching onto a piece of grit just like the oyster. Maybe we don't pay attention to the sound released in us and we take too much control in producing our own shapes. Which is probably another way of saying we get what we deserve. We've got to learn to let the sound do the work. It's a theme throughout ancient writings but particularly when I look at the first part of the Bible it's trying to tell us let the sound do the work let the sound do the work you don't have to make yourself a tree a human a dog a cat a horse a lily you don't have to make yourself the light of day or the dark of night you don't have to do it but you have to let the sound do the work and if you let the sound do the work it will transform and that's why Paul in modern language says we become transformed by the renewing of our minds. Why do our minds need renewing? Because of chaos, but it's into the chaos that the life comes. So here's a question. How long does it take to count to a billion? Anybody know? Would you like to know? It's completely irrelevant, but... It takes 31 years... 227 days, and I can't remember how many hours and seconds, but I think that's near enough, give or, give or take. 31 years, 227 days. Because if you think you count one second per second, 
a billion seconds will take you. So, so do you also know how long it takes to count to one million? It actually takes about 11 days. So if you were to start now counting one, two, three, four, it would be 11 days before you reach the million. Now, a couple of things I want to say about this. One is don't try to simplify or minimize complexity to the point where its enormity is lost. Just rest in the enormity of the billion and don't worry about having to count there because you'll lose 31 years of your life trying to get to something rather than just living in the enormity of its existence and saying, right, I just accept there is such a thing and I'm blessed. The other thing about million which intrigues me, I, I love the, the Old Testament stories and, you know, the children of Israel, when they left the borders of Egypt to reaching the land of promise, it says it was about an 11-day journey. They say, well, what do you find significance in that? Because Abraham's promise was that your people will be like the sand of the seashore and the stars of the heavens. Like in their terms, they did not know what a million was. And a million was just something ridiculous in those communities back then. But it's like, to me, that was a, an evidence in writing, in story, that there was going to be the huge multiplication, 11 days worth of multiplication. Now you know how my mind works. So don't try to simplify or minimize complexity to the point where its enormity is lost. Into the great unknown is like rummaging in Pandora's box. And I'm only just getting to terms with that. So let me, let me bring this through to some kind of conclusion for you. There's a, there's a verse in the Old Testament in the book of Kings and also in the book of Chronicles that is a, is a record of something that David said, King David said. He says, even that the heavens, even the highest heaven cannot contain you. That's a great statement. The heavens, even the highest heavens, whoever you are, cannot contain you. But we say, but our constitution and bylaws can. But our statement of faith can. I've been told all my life that the love of God is beyond comprehension. I've been told that God is beyond comprehension, that he says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, my ways are not your ways, they're higher. Yet here is our statement of fundamental truth. Okay, so love, this love's beyond comprehension. He is beyond comprehension, but here's our statement of fundamental truth. Can you see the ridiculousness of that? And whether that be the Nicene Creed, and I think the Nicene Creed has some good stuff in it, but the Nicene Creed is limited to what the people in Nicaea decided to creed. What about the Catholic dogma? Same thing again. See, it's so much bigger, and, and creation didn't come out of order, but we're so obsessed with order, it came out of chaos. And I don't know if you knew it, but chaos was the first of the Greek gods. Everything came from chaos. In the Greek culture, he was a god, he was called chaos. See, chaos is not some pit we fall into because order is removed. Chaos is the raw material of all creation. I'm trying to encourage you as we look at the bigness to say what I'm saying to you is your chaos is the raw material of all creation. And maybe it is in the midst of chaos that our hope should be at its greatest.
<laughs> not our despair, our hope. I have the raw, and some of you can say, well, I, got, I have got the raw material. <laughs> Trust me. <laughs> For hope to be at its greatest. I like the way as well, I know I'm going on a few minutes, but don't care. <laughs> Jesus said in his, his Sermon on the Mount, sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Now, I was taught that from a negative perspective. That how desperately terrible it is that each day is full of evil, sufficient to the days, the evil thereof. But Jesus' point was take no thought for tomorrow because he was really saying there's enough chaos in every day to produce for you lilies that don't strive, birds that fly and are safe. That was his story out of the chaos. So if the Bible's opening statement is to be believed, chaos is a fact not to be feared, but a state to be revered for the potential that it contains. The Bible and science mirror the truth that is in through and out of chaos that creation comes. The Bible says there was a divine, let there be. A sound spoken into the chaos. That's what the let there be is. It's the sound... Like the somatic sound, it's the sound spoken into the chaos and suddenly it starts to take order and shape and life. There may be a place in all of us for let it be. And it's not a bad principle and thanks to Paul McCartney for reminding us of it. Let it be. And there is, there is a place for let it be. Don't stress, it's It's okay. You know, David's words were different. David says, I am at peace. And I have relaxed into this. There may be a place for let it be, but there's also a place for let there be. So let me finish here. As I shake your previously held beliefs, I would say this. When they prove inadequate, that's not the place of destruction. It's the place of opportunity. Stop letting it release pity and start letting it release potential. Let there be still echoes through the universe of which you are part. And if you listen, you'll hear it. Beyond the let it be, you'll hear the sound of the let there be. And if you want to know what it is, go read Genesis chapter 1 again. When let there be gets heard Things change, things come into being. Out of chaos comes life and form. We have within us, I believe, and that's again why we've showed the expansive videos we have today, that creation has within it potentiality. And that's released with the let there be. And then it will order itself in ways that you could never imagine. We in the Christian faith call that miracle. Other faiths call that miracle because it's the beginning to order things according to the hearing of the let there be. I still believe, I told you in the Bible, I believe that let there be from the very beginning still echoes into your chaos and my chaos. And that if instead of being afraid of the known coming to an end, we would settle to the 
unknown of the largeness, the complexity, the amazingness, the indescribable wonder, then we would understand that in us all that potentiality that brought all this to being and continues to make it is the same potentiality in you and me that will do the same thing in our life and in our experience. I pray today that you will relax into that. You will rest, like David says, like a child weaned by its mother. You've had the milk, and now you rest, you settle. You don't stress, you don't strive. But you understand this is bigger than me, but in it all, it flows to me, in me, through me. And in my old terms of how I was raised, that makes me a candidate for miracle and it means there's nothing that I can ever excuse me from my being a candidate for miracle I can just exclude what it is that comes to me by my fear of the known coming to an end and my unwillingness to see that greatness let it flow to you today because for your life and in you today there is and will always be a let there be Thanks for listening to another Q York podcast. If you've been inspired by what you've heard today, then why not email us at info at qyork.co.uk and let us know who you are and where you're listening from. We love that you're listening to us and we'd love to hear from you too. Did you know you can also watch all of the talks from Q on our YouTube channel? Just go to youtube.com forward slash qchurchyork. We look forward to having you with us again soon. Until then, enjoy the quest.